sometimes, when you visit a place, it is electrifying. It's a place that digs deep into your soul, into your bones, until it shows up in your art. Join us as we talk with Madeline Dorta about Meteor City and its inspiration in the city of Detroit, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. Last time, we listened to the first episode of the fiction podcast, Meteor City. Today, we're interviewing creator Madeline Dorta of Wrightwood Studios. She launched Wrightwood Studios with her siblings, Angel and Ernesto, named after the street her grandmother's house was on in Chicago. Meteor City has recently successfully completed crowdfunding for their second season, not without some bumps along the way. Madeline and I get into what her experiences with crowdfunding and art creation have been in the independent podcasting space as a person of color. We get into the reality of Latinx representation in fiction podcasting, ripping down the myth that good art can only be made in the big city, and the perils of gentrification brought on by corporations and their sheer physicality in our world. Before we dig into the interview, an announcement. This is the final episode for this season of Radio Drama Revival. 2021 has been a very wild ride, and the team and I would like to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for sticking with us as we dealt with what the universe had to throw at us, even if that meant going radio silent. We'll be back next year with a new season, new podcasts and creators, new interviews, and new projects. Keep your eyes and ears open. Stay tuned to our Twitter, at Radio Drama, for updates. Please be aware that the following interview contains discussions of the effects of gentrification on communities of color, racism in entertainment, and the reality of Detroit after the 2008 economic crisis. Um, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, Madeline. We're really, really excited to have you on the show and to talk about Meteor City and Detroit and the post-apocalypse and what that might look like. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Um, so first of all, uh, before I get started, uh, congratulations on opening the physical Brightwood studio space. Right. I know that this has been the plan for a while and the whole uh, the whole RDR team is really proud of you for making Aww, it happen. Thank you. So congrats to you and your siblings. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bizarre. Um, very new and exciting, but like um, very surreal. But thank you. I appreciate that a lot. It's going to be great. And since we're talking about uh, Wrightwood Studios, um, Wrightwood Studios is the it's the production studio that you started with your two siblings named after the street that your grandmother's house was on. Yes. Um, tell me about that house and the memories that you and your siblings are memorializing yeah. with the Wrightwood name. Yeah. So, um, my abuelita's house was on Wrightwood, um, Avenue in Chicago and, uh, our, our childhood was pretty chaotic <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> we'll go with that. We'll go with chaotic. Um, but her house is always kind of like a safe zone. It was always just a, a place where we could, we often like found shelter there and many different versions of the word. Um, but it was a place where it seemed larger than life. 
like if you go into it as an adult it doesn't seem like this super huge house it's like an average house but as a kid there was always like a hallway to run down and always a room to play in so it was really like a center of like like play like we could just get to be kids and we got to we didn't have to deal with the drama and the chaos and the trauma of childhood you know we could just be kids and <laughs> Um, that was really where we got to just like learn and play and tell stories. And so, um, right with studios is definitely an homage to just the, you know, playfulness of being a kid. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really wonderful. Um, I really like that, that your already this house was, was that safe space yeah. for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did the house look like? Oh yeah. So yeah. Um, actually, if you go to it now, it's it's a beautiful house, but it does not look the same that it, it did, you know, back in <laughs> back in the 90s. But, you know, it was this uh, three story house um, that had this uh, a wooden porch where my abuelito used to play dominoes. Um, and uh, he would, obviously, yeah. <laughs> los dominoes, extremely important. Right. And he would he. <laughs> He would listen to um, he would listen to the Cubs on his little on a stereo um, or he would listen to like sermons, you know, but he always used, he um, my entire childhood, my abuelito was um, losing his sight. So he's a very big audio person. Everything was incredibly loud. Everything uh, he was listening to multiple, multiple radios and the TV was at max all of the time. Um, so I always had like an audio element around there. But yeah, it was just, you know it had this, 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 I don't know, other word, worldliness about it. Like it was like somehow an average house, but like you could turn the corner and there would be like a new place to hide or get into trouble. And, you know, like it was just like this crazy house that it was like never ending fun and like a place to just get in trouble. And that's what we did most of the time. Like we got, we got beat all the time because we were always just like running around the house. And, um, so yeah, that's what the, I mean, the outside, the inside was very much like wallpaper, small kitchen. Um, you know, but it was, it was very much, um, a beautiful house. Yeah. That's really, yeah. Nice. That's really <laughs> wonderful. You really clenched it there with the, the, the dominoes game yeah. up, up front. Yeah, man. Yep. And the Cubs on the radio. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Love it. <laughs> um, so you mentioned in an interview with um, Jaime Alejandro at Arts Calling mm -hmm. that you had fallen in love with fiction podcasts and audio storytelling and that your first fiction podcast was The Black Tapes. Yes. Um, so tell me, tell me more about your first time listening to The Black Tapes. What made you fall in love with it and want to tell your stories mm -hmm. in audio? Yeah. So, well, I mean... Paul Bay, genius, right? Avi. Correct. Avi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine knew, you know, knew that I was like a spooky bitch. And she was like, you have to listen to this show. You have to. Um, and I was like, okay, okay. And I heard a couple people were talking about like Nightfield at the time, you know, and I was like, okay. And I tried it out. And I was just like, I had this moment of like, oh my God, this was so cool. And it was a moment that I just, I had to stop. Like I physically had to stop what I was doing and listen. And then I went through in the entire first and second season. Um, and I was, I, there was just this moment of like, okay, I have to do this. I have no idea how, but I have to <laughs> do this because I was just so compelled by the ability of a creator to stop me doing what I'm doing. 
And I was at work, too, when I started listening to it. <laughs> I like, stopped doing my job to listen to this podcast. And I was like, I want to stop someone from doing their job. Like, I want to stop someone from cooking their dinner because they have to sit down and just focus on what they're hearing. And that's what the black tapes did for me. So, yeah. What did the the process of getting into audio look like for you after you listened to the black tapes? Like, did you go and find more podcasts to listen to immediately? Um, did you start brainstorming how to transfer your story stories? What did that look yeah, like? Yeah, um, I definitely I fell down the rabbit hole for sure. I once I binged, I was just like, <laughs> OK, I'm in love with this. I need more. So I consumed and consumed and consumed for a good year before I, I even had the idea of Meteor City. And I had this feeling um, when I was just like, huh, I haven't heard a single Latina voice in this year. And when I guess what this is a larger, you know, um, topic but when you're so used to not seeing representation you just you're just you get so used to not seeing it you don't even recognize mm-hmm. that you're not seeing it right or you're not hearing yep. it for this you know um so it, it took me a year to realize that and so I was like okay well maybe you know maybe it's it's audio so as I started looking at the shows who was in the cast members who was creating it and I was like well damn like this is an and this is another one and I loved this medium so much that I had like this sinking feeling and I was like this can't be it like this can't be another one and so I, I had this thought that I was just like, well, you know what? Maybe I'm just done for a while. I'm going to take a break from audio fiction. And then and then I went to Detroit for work. <laughs> and um, and, you know, while I was there, I was just I was so, I fell madly in love with the city. And the, this time was like my third or fourth time I, I visited Detroit. This is like the longest time I was there. Um, and I got to see it in such a different light that I ever had before. And I fell in love with the people. You know, every city has a vibe to it. And Detroit is no different than that. And I was just, I fell in love with the people, with the food, with the architecture, with with everything, the good and the bad. And in my mind, there was still like, oh, you love this audio fiction. I didn't admit it out loud that I wanted to do it because I had no idea how to do it. Um, and then the story <laughs> kind of uh, started happening in my head because of the, you know, because of the way that, Detroit looked at the time it looked like um like a natural disaster hit it it looked like a meteor hit down and um you know due to the 2008 recession and I remember thinking like there's no way that these people could still be struggling that was 10 years ago which is very stupid and naive and ignorant thing to think but that's what my first thought was and then I remember asking someone and he, he looked at me like looked like exactly that he's just like no like we're still we're still feeling it we're still going to feel it for a long time um and it was very much like me stepping back and realizing like the bigger scope of things and that's kind of how the story of meteor city kind of came to be yeah <laughs> nice yeah so i heard you i've heard you talk um on previous in previous interviews or have read you talk um having visited detroit and um learning detroit's uh electric vibe is Mm -hmm. what I think you called it in one interview. Um, So uh, other than what it was that you were seeing, I guess, um, or maybe that's just that in more detail, what, what happened in some of your earlier visits to Detroit that caught your attention the most, especially in terms of um, 
like sound and sight mm-hmm. and the things that inspired your, your storytelling and the, the sound of Meteor City. Yeah. So the first couple of times I went to Detroit were always for things like for a concert or for school or, you know, because I live in the Midwest, everything's pretty much drivable. Right. Um, and so this time was like the most time, <laughs> um, the most the longest time where I was actually um, stayed there longer than like a couple of days. Um and there's just this, like, if you close your eyes, there is this hum. There's actually known as, like, the Detroit hum. There's, like, this ominous hum oh. that you can hear that a lot of residents of Detroit hear. Um, and it's it just, no one knows what it's from. It's pretty ominous. <laughs> but outside of that, it was just, you could, there's a heartbeat to it. I know, it's really strange. You can look up. <laughs> That's very weird. Uh, no one can hear me, but I'm making very <laughs> weird faces right now. I'm just kind of like, I did not know this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can look it up. It's called the Detroit Hum. And this is all, no one knows. It's been, like, studied. It's, I don't know what it's from. They, it's so crazy. But, um, yeah. And it's just like, there's almost like this heartbeat to Detroit. And I was very much gravitated to it. And so while I, like the story was very much forming in my mind, I knew it had to be audio. I knew that this, this story had to be told through audio. Yeah. It just, it just because of the, the heart of Detroit is so, has such a, a loud and boisterous sound that it had to be, I had to attempt to make it that way. That's really fascinating. Um, um, in in that interview with Arts Calling, uh, you mentioned this still heavily entrenched idea that people have to live in expensive cities like New York or Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, in order to create successful art and artistic communities. Um, and that we need to remove that burden and foster artistic communities in whatever place we might be in, mm-hmm. uh, which is a completely accurate statement in all all parts of that statement. 100% accurate. Um, what would you tell someone trying to cultivate the communities they want to work with in towns and cities like yours or maybe smaller than yours? Yeah. Um, I think it's to the biggest thing that took me. I mean, I mean, it still takes me. It's not like something I've mastered by any means to befriend your uncomfortableness, to learn to be comfortable and being uncomfortable because it is the scariest thing in the world to stand up and say like, hey, I'm doing something. I'm making something. Can you support me? Can you join me? Um, because when you do, I, it's like I promise you people are going to, one, pay attention. And two, even if they don't tell you that they're watching you, they're watching you. And you never know like the action you're going to inspire. Because I remember saying like, hey, I'm doing this audio thing and no one liked it on Facebook. No one liked it on Instagram. But I kept posting about it. And then a friend of mine was like, hey, I always thought I wanted to get into voice acting. Right. And I like the conversation started from there. So I think it's just to show up is so scary, but it's often so worth it. So I think the first step is to be like, hey, I live in this town of 100 people. Right. I'm like, hey, does anyone want to maybe just read a script out loud? or just listen to an audio drama with me, like just to show up is a really, really big step. Um, And if that means showing up on Twitter, on Audio Drama Sunday, if that's showing up in your local, you know, community theater, whichever way, however you define showing up, um, you just got to do it. That's like the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This, uh, I think one of the more salient things about podcasting is, of course, the fact that you can, it's more 
it is easier to build community um, online and to like do this stuff online, right? Because mm-hmm. the, I mean, as we just witnessed through the theater world, they had to go through a lot of growing pains to be able to adapt to a lot of online programming. Right. Um, but podcasts already live online. <laughs> true. Maybe too online sometimes, but yes. <laughs> yes, that's also true. Oh, God. <laughs> Save us from the internet. Um, uh, and then, of course, there was all of the, the headlines that wanted to convince us about which theater city had invented fiction podcasting that month. Um, but, I mean, other than that. Right. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to learn there about... Um, how to build community and what uh, what showing up means for mm-hmm. your community. And actually, on that note, um, you have led crowdfunding and casting calls mm-hmm. for two podcasts at this point, yes. for Meteor City mm-hmm. um, and for Covencast. And you've had some really intense experiences surrounding both of them. I have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we. Um, so Wrightwood's um, goals in casting are to do so authentically and diversely, which has meant a lot of really long search times, from what I understand. Yes, um, so. mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what what have you learned about the casting process for fiction podcasting from these experiences? Um, the biggest thing I've learned, well, one, you have to have patience, one, which I'm not naturally a patient person, so that's really hard. Um, but to, I think as creators, we can be very protective of our cast, um, of these characters that we create, as we should be. Um, but one, I think it's, 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 it's good to be open to the possibility of your character evolving and changing in a way that you didn't necessarily create. Um, so, for example, with Bianca, um, she was uh, Daisy Gavetta was not the person I originally cast for the show. We had someone who was cast, um, and it didn't work out. And thankfully, Daisy um, agreed to do it very last minute on Discord. I sent her a message, <laughs> and it was like, "Hey, you want to be the lead of the show?" And she said, "Yeah." Um, nice. But she had taken she had taken um, Bianca in a way that I did not right necessarily and she she crafted it in a way that was so much more dimensional than i wrote her so i i'd say be open to the possibility of the characters that you write changing when you find a voice actor who has the imagination and the talent to change it it you know obviously it's still your character so still protect it but just be open to that idea and also um practice self-care especially you know especially especially if you're you know you're a BIPOC creator and you're trying to cast someone you're gonna have to deal with a lot of BS and you're gonna just deal with some some people who are very entitled um you know I think her community can be so incredible um at times but there's also a lot of people who just don't care about the same things that you care about and still see it as um it's audio so why does diversity matter you know, yeah. it's like, well, who cares? And then you'll have, you know, a 45 year old white man audition for a 23 year old black woman and have no problem with that because and then give this horrible caricature of what a black woman sounds like and be able to sleep at night, <laughs> you know, and then you're just like you're oh God. you're like sick to your stomach and you're angry. And then, you know, you're like, why do I even matter? Why does this even matter? So just learn to like pace yourself, know that you're going to 
sometimes deal with crap, but know that your story ultimately, it's important. Whatever story you're going to tell is important and the space needs it. So practice self-care. That's like the biggest one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I need to pause this interview. Actually, I need to go lie down after hearing that. (laughs) Um, I just, I need to go lie down and stare into space. Yes. And, and ask myself why, Mm -hmm. why? Yeah. Um, I know the answer. Uh, (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, but but in all seriousness, uh, that's uh, that that is a very common experience that I have seen over and over and over again happen in, with casting calls. I have seen casting calls, even if they are casting calls written by white folks that have BIPOC characters, where the casting call demands that this mm-hmm. character needs to be played by a person of the same race slash ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I still, we still see it, right? This, um, and I think that something that, uh, something that I have picked up from some of the people that I have worked with, including uh, the folks at Hug House, is um, when you go through your, your casting call auditions, when you go through auditions that you have received, anything that treats any, like, basic rule that you have laid in place, (laughs) just gets tossed in the garbage um you know and that includes things like in the pronoun section if they've made fun of the fact that you're asking for pronouns into the garbage right absolutely yeah absolutely yeah and that's it's really if you have a lot of auditions it's always really nice to just be able like garbage and (laughs) never have to listen to that audio yeah also i that's such a good point one if someone doesn't take time to read the casting call fully, that's usually red, you know, that's a red flag. Um, You know, some things, you know, you know, a lot of voice actors, they're looking at tons of auditions. They're trying to get their next gig. I totally understand that. Um, But like, if you don't read the basics of the character or the show, um, that's, that's a big red flag. And also, (laughs) um, yeah, I think if you're creating an audio drama, know that you're going to get more auditions than you think that you are. Like, you really are going to have, you know, way more because we're growing so much. Um, that's what, that was my big, I was so surprised. I was like, are you kidding me? Um, so I was definitely <laughs> overwhelmed. I had to, like, go to, you know, take a stress nap. But that's something to prepare for, too. It's just like, you're going to get more than you think you are. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially if you're doing everything remotely. Yeah. Um, if you're doing everything remotely, you're going to get a ton more auditions than, than mm-hmm. anyone ex- expects. I know that um, Aaron Kian and and Lee Davis Dalburn, when they did um, Nim's Nebulous Notions, got something like upwards of like 600 auditions. Oh That's um, insane. And then got to they got to throw away a, a whole third of them because it was... A mostly Americans trying to fake an Australian accent. Yeah. When one of the rules in the casting call was, this is in space, please don't fake an Australian accent. <laughs> Even if you think you're good at it. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that, that would be, that would be, it's a big flag right there. Also, um, I guess on another note for people who are casting and just keep in mind, it's okay to cast people you don't know. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. It's okay. It's, I, it is. This is no. Okay. This is no shade. I promise. But it's okay oh, yeah. to like cast people who've never been in anything before, or you know, just because someone's like a big name doesn't necessarily they're they're the best part. You know, the best person for the part. There could be someone who's just yeah. a listener who auditions who's excellent. A few of the people I who never voice acted in are fantastic season regulars in Meteor City. Um, so just don't be afraid to like go outside of your inner twitter circle to find new voices because that's what the space needs is new voices so yeah we desperately need new voices and so i highly encourage what battle is saying here um definitely always try to cast new voices of people who have only had bit parts or have never done it before um you yeah. know just put a little faith into into people yes. i think that that's really mm-hmm. important um especially if you're trying to cast marginalized folks mm-hmm. of, of various of, of, of various kinds of marginalizations right um black folks la- uh, latinx folks disabled folks right queer folks we have a problem with some of these um in some of these areas we have a problem where we have the same people mm-hmm. showing up all the time um and this happens a lot also in like mainstream hollywood right right mm-hmm. um where like they're gonna cast like the one brown person in literally all of the brown roles right and and all of the white audiences are like, well, why didn't you cast the one brown person? And and they're like, I I need I need them to cast other other right. People, and I, not just, I am not the only person. Very yeah, that's that's such a good point because I think there's a very a very thin line between um a space favorite and becoming a token character. Yes, and a token voice. Yeah. And I think that there's it's a very fine line. Um, and we know it when we see it. And I think it's just, um, just be wary of that. You know, just keep, you know, keep keep a, an eye and an ear open for people who just want to get into the space. Because there's tons of people. There's tons of people. The Radio Drama Revival and Mid-Ear City production teams would like to encourage you to donate and support the United Community Housing Coalition, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preventing eviction, foreclosure, and homelessness in Detroit. Their services help families permanently retain their homes, preserve family assets, and protect neighborhoods from gentrification and blight caused by vacant housing. You can donate to them at uchcdetroit.org/support. Let's get back to Madeline and more about her work. Yeah. So the other thing that you did um, alongside your your casting calls, right, is this um, you did crowdfunding Mm -hmm. Um, and crowdfunding in general (laughs) for for whatever independent project we're talking about. Right. Is already a stressful consideration. But then, Mm -hmm. you know, piling on top of that, all of these other factors. And so um, talk to me about your experiences with crowdfunding and your audiences and what that has meant about your approach to creativity? Um, you know, that it comes with um, what I what I said earlier about showing up. Uh, it's a terrifying thing to ask people to support you financially. Um, one, I'm a, pr- I'm a pretty prideful person at times. I come from a very <laughs> prideful culture, too, where asking for help is not something that you share no. outside of your home. Um, so yeah. literally so much so that this, I'm, okay, Ellie, you'll understand this because 
my cousin saw that I was funding for Meteor City and she shared it to my tia who shared it to my abuelita. So my abuelita tells my mom that I'm on the internet asking for money. And- <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. So the context of yeah. me crowdfunding for my show is taken like completely. And my mom's like, what do you mean? Why are you asking strangers for, for money? Is everything okay? Like, I'm like, yeah, mom, <laughs> this, this is crowdfunding. Like that, that entire like cultural perspective of crowdfunding was yeah. loaded. Right. Um, yep. I know that vibe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, uh, for, for listeners, my half of my family is, is Cuban. Like, um, like Madeline, yeah. And so, so that that was just that's, that. yeah. Where it's very um, familiar. <laughs> it was, you know, it was very scary and overwhelming, but also just you're gonna have these moments when crowdfunding that are like so exhausting, and you're gonna lose sleep, and then you have these moments where you just your jaw drops at people's generosity. And pe- people, it's not even the people that you think too. It's it's not yeah. even. There's definitely the people that you know are going to donate and they're gonna they're gonna you know support you in any way that they can. Um, but there's people that you didn't even know was a fan of your show, who even knew who you were, or were going to support you. <laughs> and so that is so strange. And then when you have all those wins, when you see you know all those people donating, it's like for me it was this imposter syndrome like a punch in the gut right i was so excited and we're like hitting goals and we're hitting our milestone and i had this feeling like who the hell am i to ask for this like my show's not even that good i only had one season and then like all these these negative thoughts came in there and i was like calm down it's okay like you're going to push through it and then thankfully we did but it wasn't mm-hmm. unfortunately i feel like it took someone just being um a crappy person for me to get to that goal um and that was like for for context someone messaged me and said like why do you need seven thousand dollars which seven thousand dollars to produce a show is not that much money <laughs> it's very it's a very small amount of money um, to produce a show so with a, with a show with a with a full cast yes. and a sound designer yeah so um to ask me you know like what do you need that money for your show's not that good already like solidified that voice in my head that already told me that so it was it you know it just it was it was yeah it, it hurt it hurt um and there's been other moments when creating in in this space where i felt hurt um but thankfully you know i i shared it even though i was just like no this is embarrassing like i don't want to share it and i you know thankfully i have my my bestie amber um <laughs> and it's, she's probably listening to this um who you know i share every my every annoying aspect of my life with um and she's like no you need to share that and i'm like no it's embarrassing like it's also that thing of pride right like no this person said this thing and it hurt me and i was mad that it hurt me but i shared it anyways and so many people supported me but it also came with this 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 feeling of like i was only i only got support once i felt further marginalized once mm-hmm. i felt mm-hmm. like i was like bullied and i was like maybe we can support creators of color without someone being a jerk to them <laughs> what a fascinating right? concept. and then it was it was so many emotions and like well, it was only 45 days of my camp of campaign of for meteor city and it was such a wild ride where i was just like up and down the whole time but Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it was worth it in the end. We surpassed our goal, yeah. which is fantastic, and we're so grateful. Um, 
but yeah, it was, it was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That is a lot. And this is a, this is a really common <sighs> refrain for crowdfunding for creators of color um, in the space where, you know, you look at the stats and the statistics even tell you that like, yeah, creators of color get underfunded mm-hmm. more than podcasts produced by white folks. Yeah. And that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, it's they, And if they do get funded, it takes them much longer and they struggle a lot more to like get to that funding. Yeah. Um, in ways like the ones that you just described, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it feels icky, for lack of a better word, because you do feel like you have to like get on your hands and knees and beg. Like, you have to truly beg and, like, almost air some of your trauma to get sympathy for your show. And that just shouldn't be the case. They really shouldn't be, you know. I shouldn't have to, someone shouldn't have to bully me in order for people to see that um, I make something of value in this space. And it happens, I see it all the time. And it's it's frustrating. It is very frustrating. It is exhausting. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say, man... I hope that that person gets to listen to your show on blast from someone's radio. <laughs> uh, just, you know, I hope so too. And I'm I just... don't, I don't harbor grudges. I'm not a Taurus. <laughs> um... <laughs> yeah. <It's fine. laughs> um, yeah. So we've got, um, we've got meteor city season one mm-hmm. uh, and you successfully crowdfunded for season two. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that you are now producing season two. Yes. Um, which is very exciting. Um, let's talk about Meteor City a little bit here. Um, so Meteor City speaks to the um, the gentrification, economic collapse, ensuing social crisis, and the governmental abandonment of the marginalized and vulnerable communities of Detroit yes. and cities like it. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, no, just tell me more about your thoughts on this um, as someone who, like, not only fell in love with Detroit and saw what it was that was happening, but also someone who grew up in a city that has undergone a lot of gentrification since you were a child. Yeah, you know, um, the one that I thought it was going to be kind of like a thing that was going to be mentioned once or twice. I didn't think that the theme of gentrification was going to be as big as Meteor City until I was driving out of uh detroit and there was a couple blocks that didn't have power so when you looked over there it was completely black and about three blocks down there was a whole foods and it, it, it honestly it made me laugh honestly because i was like it was so so obvious like staring the problem right in the face and i i wanted i wanted it to be something that anyone wherever you're from um anywhere in the world even if you live in a small town, you see these changes um, and you feel you feel helpless. And I feel I think a lot of people um, feel that way. And I wanted to write a story about a character who purposely put herself in a place of helplessness. Um, because I thought it was interesting. <laughs> because I, I think a lot of people, when they move to bigger cities like New York or L.A., they think they're going to have, especially if you're not originally from there, I think you do have this cultural shock when you're like, oh, the city is is incredible, but the city is also really hurting. It's it's really struggling. And the people that have been here who've built the city are the ones 
who are struggling most and it's built on you know their bloody backs and i think that was something i really wanted to explore and i feel like i did successfully in season one and even more so in season two the theme of gentrification is is one that i've i've seen some some work on in Colbert Hart's Null and Void. It's one that I've read in in, in obviously several fiction books, mm-hmm. right? One that comes to mind right now is um Daniel Jose Older's um his urban fantasy series. Um like Bone Street Roomba. Yes. Um mm-hmm. he deals with gentrification in New York, um, in New York City. And something that I find very interesting about the theme of gentrification in Meteor City. Um, is the way that you have paired it with this, um, with like corporate overreach, mm-hmm. let us say. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on? Um, yeah. What are what are your thoughts on on our relationships with corporations and the way that they are? taking root in our communities in our like physical spaces you already mentioned the whole foods mm-hmm. right which is owned by amazon which is why i asked this question <laughs> yeah uh, that's such a good question i think from the outside when you look at gentrification i think a lot of people don't see it as the harmful monster that it is right because it's like oh great a new store a new a, co- a new co-op a, a, you know a, a new condo that's great you know that's new people are moving in um, you know, so I think people don't see it as the truly devastating thing that it is where, um, you know, you're truly taking apart people's lives for profit. You know, it's as if someone broke into your home, stole everything that you own, kicked you out on the street and got paid for it. And I, I think we employ people to to put themselves in that situation. And a lot of people, I know a lot of listeners don't have to deal with that, but a lot of people do. Um, and I think it should change the relationship the way you see Whole Foods, for example. You know, if you're someone who likes to go to Whole Foods, maybe say like, hey, don't build this in the middle of, you know, the hood when people are struggling because those people are not going to be able to afford the things that, the, the service that you're providing. Um it, it should it should i would say it should change your relationship with the corporation it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. always will but it should um yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah and then of course in meteor city um the old detroit meteor city is is dealing with the side effects of this meteor that hit it right which are side effects that are very familiar for people who are dealing for us, for the humans who are dealing with climate change um, and with the side effects of climate change that we can see in our infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just like poor infrastructure maintenance in general um, for, I mean, Flint is what, 60 miles from Detroit? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, which is a reference to the Flint water crisis for people who are not in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Flint has been dealing with a water crisis since like 2014. Yep. um, Because of lead pipes. So you said when you saw the, 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 when you saw Detroit during your visit, um, which was still suffering pretty intensely from the the 2008 recession, um, 
uh, it looked like certain parts of the city had had a meteor hit it. Um, and I wanted to ask how you developed your, um, how did you develop your meteor city from there? What did you decide to do and what did you decide not to do in order to portray the, these different aspects that you wanted to highlight about a community in danger? Yeah. So <laughs> how I will start with how I got to Meteor City wasn't necessarily it looked like a meteor hit it. It's because I'm dyslexic and I I read a sign that said Motor City as Meteor City. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's how I got to that's Meteor City, honestly. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. So, yeah, there was this big sign. Obviously, Detroit is known as a Motor City. Um, you know, it was a manufacturer of um, cars for the main hub for for years um but no i read it as meteor city (laughs) (laughs) so that's how the name came but like you know i felt that because i'm not originally from detroit there were things that i didn't want to i didn't want to portray as if i was entitled to tell certain stories i was very much inspired by detroit but i'm not from detroit i i as much i mean i visited a couple times but to to present it as if i know the everyday struggles i thought just wasn't right so i wanted to although the location is detroit i wanted to talk to overall cities um whether it was detroit or new york or la wherever um that was kind of you could take detroit and put it out in almost any state in in the u.s and have similar problems you know because we're talking about systemic problems and that's not just you know subjugated to one one particular area but there was definitely that I didn't want to per- speak from a place that I didn't, I didn't have the right to. Um, but just the, I wanted, I guess if, if you listen to a season one, you hear that every episode sounds slightly different. And um, that was intentional um, because I feel like different areas of Detroit sound a little different. And um, I didn't, at this time, I didn't have the, the strongest ear that like, like I do now since I've been making audio for, for a couple of years now, but it just, every place I went to, whether there was a couple blocks down, um, the air sounded different. And I wanted that each show to sound just slightly different, not where like the production levels were off more of just had a different vibe to it. And I feel like it, I'm pretty proud of the way that it turned out. So yeah. Yeah. Props also to Angel. Yes. For, yeah. Uh, helping that helping that come to life. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. I think that's a really interesting note for listeners, uh, for audiences to um, to check for when they're listening mm-hmm. to your city. Yeah. That's dope. Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, so you have a um, you have a studio now. <laughs> I um, do. And um, I know that you have some short films in the works for 2022. Mm-hmm. Um. So if you're able to tease them to us, what are they about? Yeah, so I will talk about one in particular is going to be a documentary about um, which will be titled Duende, which is the feeling where you're overwhelmed by art. Um, So we're actually going to start it um, as on a local level. So we are going to actually be doing a interactive documentary talking to creators, musicians, dancers, anyone who pursues creative creativity for a profession and even not necessarily a profession, just people who are creative by nature um, 
to answer this question that I know is unanswerable, which is how do you define creativity? Um, and it really started because myself and my brothers, Angel and Ernesto, we're all very creative people and it, creativity manifests itself in so many different ways and it looks very different on every, every single person, it looks a little different. Um, so in my mind, um, I'm trying to rationalize why that, why there are some times where I feel like I am just a vessel for creativity and other times, no matter how hard I try, I can't write a damn thing. I can't, and it doesn't make sense yeah. to me. So there's something broken in my head. It's just like, no, you have to understand this. Um, and I'm like, I know I never will, but I'm going to try. And I just wanted to see like, Hey, let's just see what creativity looks like. For other people and our goal is to kind of take it to different places to see what creatives are doing outside of our area so that's one that's that we're working on 22 and 2022 which is crazy because it sounds so futuristic but it's going to be here in like a couple weeks <laughs> so. yeah that's like right around the corner yeah. i'm not ready yeah. i am ready but i'm not ready yeah that's very exciting i'm very excited for all of you Thanks. um and then um uh, what is it that you have planned in the audio space? Because you're doing Meteor City Season mm -hmm. 2, and then you're also working on Covencast. Yes. Yeah, so um, outside of those two, I actually have something that's going to be premiering this week, which I don't know when you'll hear this episode, but um, it will be... Oh, right. You're the, the Thumbelina retelling. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No. Go ahead. No, you're okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, I wrote a two-act play for the Feminist Fairy Tales podcast, which is a um, Thumbelina retelling, which is we finally got our, our Latina fairy tale. Um, and I'm so excited. I can't even put into words how excited I am for the show. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but basically, yeah. uh, Lena is about a first-gen um, Latina eldest daughter who oh. is made... Uh, is made to feel small by her culture, by her family. And she goes on this journey to learn to take up space and to live her life on her own terms. And it's very much a traditional heroine's journey and a fable, but it has so much heart. And I'm so excited and proud um, of it. So, <laughs> so excited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So excited. Yeah, no, I, I remember reading about it and it just slipped my mind. Yeah. So I'm glad that you I'm, talked about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for this one. Um, I hope there's some mijitas out there who who feel heard and seen and learn to defy themselves by their own terms and not their families, not their mothers, um, not the men in their lives, but just by their own, <laughs> just by their own standards. And I hope that's what this fairy tale does. Yeah, I'm so excited. So <laughs> <laughs> well, it was really wonderful to talk to you, Madeline. Me too. Yeah. yeah. So we're really excited for, for the second season of Mid-Year City. So I'm excited to finally be working on it. It definitely took a lot to get here, so I'm I'm excited. And anyone who's out there listening who wants to uh, create an audio drama, you can do it. Just give yourself time to do it. And it's okay not yeah. to be perfect the first couple times you do it. Cause you're not going to be so. <laughs> nope. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote that you gave in an interview um, that was "Leave your pride at the door." Yes. Um, I should get that on a T-shirt yeah. because yeah, I should. feel that all the way, and I think that goes. I mean, um, just especially for um, Black Indigenous 
creators of color, we feel this need to be perfect just to show up or other people get to, um, to show up as they are. We have to be perfect. And there has this, you know, even this external pressure to be this way and where other people um, get to fail up, we don't get that opportunity. So the first opportunity has to be perfect. And that is a disservice to ourselves and to the space. So um, mm -hmm. it's okay to show up however you are. Mm -hmm. Good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Madeline. Oh, I appreciate it. No problem. If you liked what you heard, you can find out more at ridewoodstudios.com and follow them on Twitter at Meteor City Pod. Radio Drama Revival runs on Huevos Rancheros and wishing we could shake money trees like an Animal Crossing. If you'd like to help keep us afloat and featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of Anne. Fiction podcast, making fiction podcasts. Make some fiction and I put it on a podcast. Fiction podcast, that's what I'm gonna make. Fiction podcasts. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Cowlitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support or donate to Native communities, the Quileute are fundraising to move their at-risk community to higher ground and out of the tsunami zone so that their culture and heritage can thrive for generations to come. Their first objective is to move the Quileute Tribal School, which is currently located right next to the beach, endangering the lives of children and the future of the Quileute Tribe. You can learn more and donate at mthg.org. The link is in the episode description. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouse and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the GOAT. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. This has been a Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. Welcome.